I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Katharina Ruta, a clinical psychologist, psychoanalyst, and psychosocial researcher. She is a graduate of psychoanalytic training at the William Allenson White Institute in New York, where she also teaches the course Gender, Sex, and Sexuality. Alongside maintaining a private practice in New York City, she is widely published in academic journals and books on psychoanalysis, qualitative methods in psychoanalytic social research, sex and gender, anti-Semitism, racism, the aftermath of National Socialism and the Holocaust. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated how did i come to psychoanalysis and what has interested me always, which is basically the interdisciplinary character of psychoanalysis, um, that it finds itself between, um, between disciplines from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And the way that I discovered it was basically through what, what I missed in academic psychology, where there was this focus on the individual as if the human being lived um, outside of the societal context. Um, and then it's just basically broken down to individual, individual psychology and then neuroscience, where then lately pretty much the mind is equated with the brain. And so I missed um, I missed the perspective on the human being in all the complexities that we live in and that we develop in, in which we become human beings. Um, and then I landed at the University of Bremen um, in Germany, where in the 90s it was still possible to study clinical psychology with a focus on psychoanalysis. And also, uh, I was introduced to this combination of psychoanalysis and critical theory based on, or going back to the Frankfurt School. Um, And this, I was introduced to this tradition of psychoanalytic social research that was still being taught at this university in the 90s, 
by now, unfortunately, you know, um, the, the professors who taught it um, retired and their positions were replaced by mainstream psychological positions. So unfortunately, this tradition has been very marginalized. Um, but um, so yes, I've, I've always been interested in the combination of uh, psychoanalysis and the social sciences but the social sciences that um, are not merely scientific in that everything is um, investigated by statistical methods only and through quantitative analyses, but that, um, yeah, that is based on a critical theory of society where the, the methods are qualitative and there's this, this big and very fruitful overlap of um, psychoanalysis and psychosocial research. And that's, that's pretty much where, where I come from. Yeah, and I think that's so important now, and especially today. And I know you recently wrote an article about this and how they kind of had been separated for a long time. Um, and like you said, psychoanalysis, mainstream psychoanalysis was just focusing on the individual as if we like form in this kind of bubble <laughs> and all these social constructs uh, and experiences aren't really affecting our mental health. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, I would like to. Um, yeah, uh, that also goes back to this theoretical niche tradition that I, that I studied in. Um, and um, it's, it's interesting, it's a combination of what from a European perspective would be called Freudian psychoanalysis and critical theory. But interestingly, what I learned in the United States was that in the United States, often when you say Freudian, that's equated with ego psychology. Um, American ego psychology. And so when I would, when I would come with Freudian ideas um, in the context of the relational interpersonal school where, where I did my psychoanalytic training, um, I would be put into the corner of, oh, that's reductionist. The Freudians are reductionist. That's ego psychology. They don't have the idea of us from the get-go being embedded in the social and um, the social becoming part of our very fabric. Um, and so that's, that's the perspective that is important to me where um, I try to think with these theorists I have in mind that even in the emergence of the drives from birth on, the social and the natural are already inextricably intertwined, um, which means that our so-called nature is always already second nature because we internalize the social from the get-go and it becomes embodied. So we live societal structures and then from the psychoanalytic perspective, of course, it's more complicated. Um, so we embody 
a social structure, and then at the same time, we're also in conflict with it. We bump up against the social as well. And so um, maybe I can also talk a little bit about this one theorist that, um, that is very important to, to my thinking, um, whose name is Alfred Lorenzer, um, who's pretty unknown in the English-speaking world, not the least because he's hardly been translated. And that is not the least because he's very hard to translate. And the language is very, very stereotypically German, which is very bulky, very non-sexy. And um, <laughs> so um, that's, that, that was a project of, of mine when I came to the United States to, to make accessible the work of this psychoanalyst and um, sociologist, who is also a critical theorist, um, to an English-speaking audience. And so um, a couple of friends and colleagues of mine and I, we translated um, a, a major essay by this author, which is hopefully going to be published this year by Jonathan House and Unconscious in Translation. Great. And um, yeah, I would like to introduce a little bit these ideas to, to maybe arouse an interest in, in a few listeners. Absolutely. Okay, great. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about this approach and this, this, uh, this niche tradition of psychoanalysis, um, critical theory, and really the intersection of clinical psychoanalysis and what Lorenz called cultural analysis, which was later on developed in a whole tradition of psychosocial research or psychoanalytic social research. Um, and the sexy name of this essay that we translated is um, in German, Tiefenhermeneutische Kulturanalyse, which we translated by in-depth hermeneutical cultural analysis, which already is a bulky, not very sexy title, but we find that the, the ideas that are being developed there are very, um, very interesting and also very topical in, um, in our times when I think it's very urgent to think about the, um, the social conditions that make people suffer and how intricately this social suffering becomes very intimate personal suffering and how we can't separate um, the mental health, the intimate suffering from suffering that is brought about through social conditions. Yeah, that was another thing that I thought was really essential in, in the article I recently read of yours, is that these, these conditions that cause so much suffering are presented as if they're just like truths or just like 
conditions that can't be altered or just like things that people are just have to deal with when really, you know, uh, and also then the lens is turned on the individual again is like, what is wrong with you? You have a biological condition, you have a mental health issue when really it's this kind of environmental uh, problem that's causing suffering. Right. And this, this myth has also become internalized to such a degree that our patients come in and present with having a mental illness that is considered merely psychological or biological and um, and um, they want to get rid of the symptoms of course understandably but um, they blame themselves for mm -hmm. for instance for instance um, the lack of economic success um, they consider themselves failures when they lose their job and of course um, in the times of this economic crisis due to COVID it becomes so apparent that um, this neoliberal narrative doesn't um, doesn't tell the truth or doesn't tell the whole truth this neoliberal narrative of um, if I'm not successful then it's my own fault I haven't um, I haven't been successful in optimizing my self-exploitation to such an extent that I could be a successful um, employee or entrepreneur making money and happily uh, consume. Yeah, and or, that's exactly what ego psychology in the States became. It's getting people to have to shore up their defenses and their ego so that they can keep working and like being good, you know, little capitalists. <laughs> right, right. Self-optimization. Yeah. I, um, I studied with um, uh, Thomas Leithäuser, who's my, as we say in German, my doctor father. And um, he studied with uh, the old critical theorists. I think one of his teachers was Max Horkheimer. Um, and he was my doctor father. He's a so sociologist and a social psychologist who developed further Lorenz's method into this tradition of psychoanalytic social research. So he was a major figure in that tradition. And my doctor Mutter, Dr. Mother was Elfriede uh, Löchel, who is now um, at the International University, International Psychoanalytic University in Berlin. And she's a clinical psychoanalyst. And um, so this, this combination of social research and clinical psychoanalysis has um, inspired me. And um, Lorenz was, in, based in Frankfurt, and um, uh, connected with the Sigmund Freud Institute, which is still uh, in existence. 
and it's, uh, it's an institute for social research and for clinical psychoanalysis and one of the places where this tradition is also still taught and practiced. Um, I'm also still connected to this institute. Um, we've had a study group of the aftermath of the Shoah in um, mainly in Europe. And um, there are still working groups that use the method of what Lorenza coined as scenic understanding, which she understands the psychoanalytic method to be. Um, which employs scenic understanding in clinical psychoanalysis, but also in order to analyze phenomena that we cannot understand without the supposition of a dynamic, dynamic unconscious. And that's the basic idea. Where, where do we need the psychoanalytic method? Where do we need psychoanalysis in the social is when we are facing phenomena that we can't grapple with without the idea that there is something irrational at work. Um, and so the, some of the fields of study have been um, Nazi Germany, uh, the Shoah, um, contemporary racism, sexism, um, and in, in these realms, I think it's, it's quite apparent how we, we, need, we need to look at the irrational. We, we need to have an idea of an unconscious because otherwise we can't grasp what, what is happening. Um, so these examples of extreme human destructiveness, um, where of course the Holocaust is an extreme example, where um, millions of people were not only exploited for work, not only for something we could rationalize, but they were annihilated in um, what we might call factories of industrialized annihilation, annihilation for annihilation. So without, without a concept of the unconscious comprising of very, very destructive um, um, human parts of human nature, we, we fail at, at uh, basically grappling with our, our human social condition. Um, so this essay that we translated um, is important because it founded this tradition of psychoanalytic social research. And Lorenz draws together in this piece the theoretical and methodological lines of his research that he had developed since the late 1960s. And this tradition of psychoanalytic social research 
was later developed further in Frankfurt and at the University of Bremen by figures such as Hans-Joachim Busch, Hans-Dieter König, Ulrike Prokop, and then in Bremen by Thomas Leithäuser, Birgit Vollmerk, Elfriede Löchel, and um, the International Research Group for Psychosocial Analysis, which is still active in, um, in a few European countries. Um, Lorenzer was concerned with what he calls the genuine psychoanalytic epistemological subject, the unconscious, and he conceptualized this unconscious as the product of the dialectics between nature and society from birth. And this includes the emergence of the drives, which especially in the English speaking context um, is often understood as something um, merely biological, which of course is not the least due to the unfortunate translation by Strachey of the drives as instinct, um, instincts. So Lorenzer reformulated drive theory that allows for um, thinking this dialectic in the emergence of the drives themselves. Um, his term is that of forms of interaction, embodied forms of interaction. This idea of the reformulation of the emergence of the drives themselves as already in this intertwinement of the social and the natural. Um, Lorenza goes back to Freud's early conceptualization of the originary situation between mother and child in the interpretation of dreams. And he uses the beautiful Freudian term Lebensnot, which translated literally means life emergencies, to understand how drives come into come about. These emergencies, says Lorenza, are the very source of the drive. So the infant needs human interaction in order to survive. But it's only through specific primary interactions that the baby can have those needs met. So a baby is born in utter dependency on an adult other. And the way in which this mother other responds to the needs of the infant, the bodily needs, is both deeply rooted in society and in her subjectivity, in her idiosyncrasy. So Lorenza highlights from this very beginning, the emergence of the drives, how forms of interactions are societal also, and not just natural, because the mother or any other caregiver is bound in and mediating through societal structure. So in short, 
human development, both our pleasures and our suffering, result from the complex relationship of biological needs and individual responses to those needs that are always intertwined with the societal. And so there is a focus on the very bodily that often in, um, in the interpersonal relational tradition of American psychoanalysis um, gets out of focus, uh, gets out of focus, and the social, which the interpersonalists, relationalists also focus on. And so in this, in this uh, reformulating drive theory, um, a drive emerges as that which seeks repeated satisfying interaction in order to have the needs met. The memory trace, so there also Lorenza goes back to the very early Freud, the memory trace of satisfaction is now being etched into the subject and consolidated in the neurophysiology of, of the developing human infant. And by striving for satisfaction, the drive now turns into a structure of specific forms of interaction. Memory traces are then traces of lived experience and form patterns for future interactions. So there are traces of interactions of scenes. And there we are at this primary experiential unit in this kind of thinking that is from the get-go a psychosocial one. And so what Lorenza has done in this, little, in this little piece is reformulating what Freud called presentation of the thing, Sachvorstellung. He replaces this with the scene as, as the primary experiential unit. And from there, we can leap to the mode of scenic understanding, which is the method of psychoanalysis to try to understand, try to grapple with unconscious layers of meaning in human interactions. And that of course then becomes relevant in the clinical and in the social mm -hmm. realm. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's a, such an important shift. Mm -hmm. I feel like you could even think of like patterns of transference now as these kinds of uh, recreations of these scenes. Yes, exactly. And so it's, it's also quite interesting that the term of enactment that um, is very prominent in the interpersonal relational school in the United States has, I think, even um, independently developed in this tradition of Freudian psychoanalysis in Europe um, 
where the idea that we repeat unconscious relational patterns in the consulting room with the therapist analyst um, and that we also enact in scenes with the analyst what is still not formulated what still is um, unconsciously motivated, which we cannot symbolize yet. And so it's interesting to look at the differences and the similarities of the theories of symbolization from these two very separate traditions of one being directed basically against so-called Freudian psychoanalysis, ego psychology, and psychoanalysis that calls itself Freudian, but has a very different reading of Freud at its, um, at its yeah, basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I went, my institute said it was a Freudian institute and that's why I went there because I was like, I want to learn like classic Freud. Yes. And, um, and then that's what I always say. It was, it was an Anna Freudian institute more so <laughs> than a Sigmund Freudian institute. <laughs> it's very ego psychology. <laughs> and like you said as well, when Sigmund Freud started, um, or at least like in the 20s, they were really focused on bringing psychoanalysis to the greater population and not so much focus on like who could pay what, but like just helping people that had been traumatized by the war, people that were of uh, lower incomes and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And that's, that wasn't carried over uh, like in the States, for example. Right. And um, it wasn't carried over because psychoanalysis was pretty much destroyed in Europe um, by the Nazis and, and Nazi Germany. So many Jewish psychoanalysts were persecuted, had to flee. Um, Freud had to flee and his family. Um, and the ones who couldn't flee were murdered. Um, and psychoanalysis survived mainly in exile um, and became popular in the United States um, where we can be of course grateful that psychoanalysis survived but it survived in in the United States in this medicalized form and I would think that the Jewish immigrants um, wanted to, were, were still, of course, traumatized to the persecution and um, lived in fear of being persecuted again. Um, and so therefore they were interested in, in becoming part of the medical establishment in the United States. And um, so this medicalization of psychoanalysis, I think is, is partly based on, on the 
persecution of the Jewish science in Europe um, and the, the persecution of analysts that, um, that practiced a, a socially critical psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then when people moved to the US, fled to the US, then, you know, in the 50s, there was all this McCarthyism and this like paranoia and, you know, really persecutory atmosphere in the States as well, aimed at communism. So I'm sure it wasn't, uh, it wouldn't have been easy to like try to speak out about those kinds of issues. Of course, you just want to um, be safe. Yes, of course. Especially after, after having um, already survived persecution and after the murder of, of family members um, in, in Europe, in the Holocaust. What made you decide to come to the States? Oh, um, there's many different reasons. Um, one personal reason, and um, then, uh, I mean, all the reasons are personal, but one, one uh, very personal reason and other personal reasons. Uh, I, I had been in New York in 2010 and really fell in love with the, the city and its vibe, and also love that psychoanalysis seemed to be so vital there. There's such a big psychoanalytic scene, and you can really find various schools, um, competing schools in New York that are in, in vital uh, dialogue with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I had been in academia in Germany previously, but it it had always been my dream to one day combine the clinical and the the social research side of me. And so um, I decided to finally do my psychoanalytic training in New York. And um, I landed at the William Mallinson White Institute where I became um, introduced to the interpersonal relational school. And um, so now I have this odd identity as a European Freudian from my background, who in her clinical work has a strong tinge of uh, relational interpersonal psychoanalysis. That's great. How is psychoanalysis doing in Germany now? Um, Well, it's, it's also been um, excluded from academic psychology. Um, There is still very few places in which you can learn about psychoanalysis at all, which is Bremen, Frankfurt, um, Hannover, and Berlin. 
uh, to my knowledge. Um, and so there's also this separation of psychonomic institutes and uh, psychology and academia. Um, psychoanalysis is also more popular in uh, the humanities, but the combination of, yeah, psychoanalytic thinking and social sciences, which I'm also interested in, um, has been pretty marginalized. Yeah, I and can't. Political psychoanalysis is also, um, yeah, is unfortunately kept in institutes and private practices. The psychoanalytic university that was, um, that started maybe a decade ago in Berlin is an exception. And it was started because of that reason, because of the disappearance of psychoanalysis from universities. And so the idea was to start a university where um, you can study clinical psychoanalysis and um, psychoanalytic thinking cultural analysis, psychoanalysis in, in the social sciences. That's great. I can't help but think of um, the path that psychoanalysis has taken as like very kind of akin to the unconscious in that like, no matter what's happened, people like, you know, attack it or try to repress it. It always seems to kind of like find a way, find a way out to find a way up. And uh, yeah, I just feel like it's, you know, it's no matter if its forms have changed or depending on where it's gone, it's always kind of comes back up. It comes back into the discourse. And I think that's really fascinating and a real uh, statement about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the unconscious is um, always, always uh, active. And so also the the wish to bring to light what is unconsciously motivated. And so, yes, we find ways to, to work psychoanalytically and to teach psychoanalytically and to still, yeah, pop up. And, uh, and um, find find a voice that is different from, from the dominant narratives, the dominant rationalistic narratives. And I think it's, it's particularly important to find those voices these days where, again, we can say that um, the irrationality of, of our human condition is is taking over, which we can see in capitalism out of control, um, creating or having exacerbated in the past uh, decades the, the inequities, especially in the United States. Um, and we can see it in the rising right-wing extremist movements 
um, white supremacy, Trumpism in, in the United States, and also right-wing extremist movements that become more and more powerful in Europe, all over Europe. Um, so on the one hand, this political, socially aware psychoanalytic thinking, I think can contribute to bringing to light what forces are at play. And we need this kind of thinking to grapple with, yeah, really with human destructiveness, because without the supposition of an unconscious, we can't, we can't understand how humans find pleasure in torturing others, in dominating others, or in dominating ourselves and submitting to um, the imposing social structure, to the logic of having to exploit oneself in order to be fit for the competition, to still get a job, to still um, work to make a living, to strive to be the best, to strive to beat others and be perfect and make more and more and more. Um, so I think psychoanalysis always, um, yeah, becomes important when it comes to, to understanding what cannot be understood with rationalistic, um, thinking. What do you think we can do? So on the one hand, in our practices, we have to be aware of, of the social structures that also create the suffering of our patients. We have to have that in mind when we work. And um, in our psychoanalytic method, we listen with evenly suspended attention. So all of, of the reasons for the suffering will come out. And that's always very personal, intimate, um, stemming from, from family stuff, but it's also at the same time deeply social. And so if we have an ear on that socially produced suffering, we can work with it. We can um, not directly change, um, we cannot directly change uh, the world we live in through helping a patient find, um, through helping a patient understand better why they suffer, but we can help them um, understand themselves better and then make freer choices of how they want to live, how they want to deal with their social environment and their intimate environment and their intimate um, lives. Um, on the other hand, I think as psychoanalysts, we can participate in the social and political discourse, and we have a lot to 
offer um, not just to critical theory, but also to to research that can bring to light what what mainstream methods cannot cannot grasp. Um, another thing I find important when often when I've attended um, talks or lectures on the combination of psychoanalysis and the political or or the social or um, talks that address what is going on politically in the United States or in Europe, um, I've often heard the response, but what do we do? Um, how, can we, how can we apply this knowledge? Um, and I think it's also important to be aware that it's not about, it's not about conducting psychoanalysis differently in order to to address the political that it's not that it's not an omnipotent uh, discipline we also need um we need political science we need philosophy we need the social sciences we need the humanities we need all these other um approaches in order to understand the world we're living in Psychoanalysis can't do it all. Psychoanalysis can only help bring to light what can't be brought to light in other disciplines from other perspectives because it always tries to grapple with what was um, dissociated or repressed, which ha has remained unconscious. Um, and of course, psychoanalysis itself is not political action. So the question I find misleading, the question of, but what do we do as psychoanalysts? It's not about trans, it's not about transferring the psychoanalysis, the psychoanalytic practice into political action. We can, we can use it to understand parts of the, of social dynamics. We can use it as a psychoanalytic method in social research. We can help patients understand themselves better intimately and in, in the social world they live in. And there is political action. So people can become freer in their own understanding and um, less neurotic and they can make they can make the choice to become politically active but it's not it's not psychoanalysis that directly informs political action or yes psychoanalytic thinking can inform political action but it doesn't lead directly to political Yeah, it's something that came to mind. I feel like with patients, I often find myself 
you know, people make such definitive statements about themselves. And this reminds me of uh, what you said earlier with that, um, you know, people have internalized these kinds of frameworks so much and helping them to like dismantle them in their own kind of mind and lives is, is a great step. Um, but I feel like often it's just like people say things about themselves like, you know, I know that I procrastinate. I know that I do this. And just getting them to question like, like, you know, who told you that? Or like, where do you think you got that idea? Or whose words are those, you know, because they're so identified with these kinds of beliefs about themselves when really when like, for example, with procrastination, like maybe you don't want to be this hyperproductive <laughs> cog and maybe you're procrastinating for a reason. You right, know? <laughs> right. That's the, the, um, the internalized narrative often is, no, I'm, I'm just lazy. I'm bad, I'm a failure, and I need to be productive at all times. Um, I need to work all the time, and only if I exploit myself to the limits am I a worthy human being. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we've, we've internalized the logic of, of, uh, of capitalism. Um, to such a degree that often we cannot even question the logic. It's become, it's become a second nature. Yeah, and even in this time of pandemic of people being like, well, you can use this time to do all of these <laughs> creative projects you've been putting off or, you know, I know I, I know I do it. I have to keep myself like constantly busy. I, and I just like, like, I just don't know how to function any other way. Hence the podcast, for example, <laughs> you know, just constantly have to be working on making something, you know, but it's definitely like, you can't just, it's hard to just be. And also then that's also when like you start thinking about everything that's going on a lot, you know? Yes. And I think that's a great example. So on the one hand, um, we've internalized this um, imperative to be productive at all times, and it can be really productive in this in this wonderful way where you create a podcast and really, yeah, create something. And the same imperative that we've internalized can just make us suffer more where, as you said, it's become, it's become the, the imperative of having to be productive at all times. And so we live in, in a lot of pressure and heightened anxiety when, we're, when we don't feel productive. Hmm. So even, um, yeah, even this workable energy is being used up in, in two different ways. One where we can actually create something and one in which we just we just turn it into more um, self-flagellation of not being ever productive enough because we can never be perfect.
Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Katerina Rote. For more, links to her work can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. In the past was the tear vial, the painter's technique, swinging back society to with Satan glued into your, into me, joint efforts, case leading down, water, cool down, the venues of brainstorming, originary ground of our pre-linguistic prey. Almost signal, they, after all, one, just smart and clarifies their formal, resting, waiting, once debate as to the exact, or his work on Eschatol, got my light, my fire backwards, on my unconscious, Similar to the manifest continue to host, surrealism grew out of Dada and good, perhaps Ness, and with experience, idea of regression in his powers. Europe and North America, that allowed for contact between, defining Dada as its resistance to definition. Advisory Board of by Manism. Close, safe, notes the mischievous nature, most pointedly illustrated, when might be, we may. Synthesis incarnate, what changes will occur? Education, but because that represents our 
magical alchemy, hermaphrodite, and angelic. 